Yeah, I know, this is gonna raise some hackles, and that's fine. This is a crap episode, I'm not trying to defend it, I just don't think it's Lamentation category. Why? Because it's boring, stupid, bad, and dumb, with only one minorly redeeming feature, but... But... It didn't have that extra oomph. I know that sounds strange, and of course you are more than welcome to disagree with me on this, but I kept waiting, I kept waiting for that last little tidbit of... to justify it in Lamentation, it just kept not happening. It just kept being a boring, bland, dumb, stupid, terrible, awful old episode. This is absolutely going on the skip list. In fact, I think I'm going to put this at the bottom of the skip list, in terms of quality. But I don't think this is lamentation-worthy. Before we go any further... Let's talk about the show. Uh, Star Trek, I mean, not my show. Now, I've been debating when exactly I want to talk about this, and unfortunately, hammering down very specific dates is more difficult than it should be when it comes to this. But I think it's important to mention Herb Solo has left the season by this episode. I'm not sure exactly when. I'm not. I do know it was sometime in fall of 1967-ish. Somewhere around there is when he finally left. Uh, actually, he left the studio in its entirety. He didn't just leave Star Trek. He, he peaced out. I don't want to read this, if you don't mind. This is directly from Herb Solo. This is his own words. An ideological disease had spread throughout the East Coast business community. Unfortunately, it had been carried to the television production business by the corporate thinkers at Gulf and Western. The disease was called... MBA, and it supposedly had originated at the Harvard Business School. Being an Ivy League graduate myself, I foolishly thought perhaps I'd be immune to the cancerous ideology. This is soon not to be the case. I'm going to fast forward a bit because this is long as like several pages worth, but let's cut up to the next relevant point here. <clears throat> this is from Bob Justman now, Robert Justman. Herb came to me and showed me the plan he was supposed to implement. What do you think? I said, I read it, unbelievingly. We don't manufacture widgets here, Herb. They don't, don't they know this is show business? This whole thing is gobbledygook. I thought it might amuse me. It's Looney Tunes time. What are you going to do? I'll think of something. Rewind a second. Check this out. <clears throat> the Gulf and Western financial people had looked over the Desilu production figures and were concerned. Charlie Bl Blood Bloodhorn wanted to visit Star Trek to see for himself what was going on. No one in this... So hang on, I'm going to read this whole thing because it's relatively short. Since I still kept my old office, I want... This is Herb again, by the way. This is Herb Solo. Sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit. Uh, since I still kept my old office, I walked across the lot to the Paramount side and met Bloodhorn. As we walked across the Star Trek stages, I could see the great verve and drive that made him successful. I could also see he didn't have the slightest idea how films were made. No one on the set recognized him, and my being there was no big deal. So it was business as usual. Director Mark Daniels had made several takes in order to get the correct look on Shatner's face. Nimoy's head turned took a couple takes, and Nichelle Nichols's hailing frequencies open went on for at least five takes. Bloodhorn continued to stare in utter disbelief until he signaled me to join him outside the stage. Listen, Herb, it's obvious why that star show is costing so much money. Why do you let the director shoot the same scene over and over again? It's not cost-effective. I want you to stop. Honestly, I could stop right there. <laughs> because that one section so adequately explains why they were piecing out and the total lack of understanding. But it gets even better. They were pushing forward this whole idea 
of having a new person in charge of business and just all sorts of fun stuff. John Reynolds was actually someone who uh, was a decent folk by by several accounts, at least as far as business goes. And he was the one who personally was like, I'm just going to say you resigned as, as, as a result of... Um, <clears throat> difference over management policies is exactly what the newspaper article said. So he bowed out. Herb Solo left the show. Now, remember how I said Herb Solo was the Rick Berman, except, you know, not a despicable, horrible human being like Rick Berman was? They now lacked that element in Star Trek. If you've been paying attention as we've been winding down Season 2, I've been pointing out the chinks in the armor that have been slowly showing up as the show goes on. Um, he made a comment here. Uh, actually, I want to share this really quick, too. John Lucas, Mer uh, John Meredith Lucas, divulged that near the end of the second season, John had, Gene had confided in him that Justman is not your friend. The truth was that Robert was very much John's friend and supporter, and he was horrified to hear this falsehood. Actually, Robert always wondered why Lucas was not invited back for the third season of the show. We both still don't know, and neither does John Meredith Lucas. Now, I mentioned that because that's relevant. John Meredith Lucas would be another person to leave the show after season two, but not because he wanted to. Unlike many people who are fleeing ship, he was down for continuing. He wasn't invited back. And to my knowledge, we do not know why. And I have gone looking into this to try and figure this out. The other thing I want to share with you, now that Herb Solo... Hang on, actually, before I go any forward, I do want to say one thing. Just really quick, I just want to acknowledge the amazing impact that man had on the fact that Trek exists. Can we just take a moment and acknowledge how awesome he was for his contributions to the series and the franchise and culture? The universe? Can we do that? I just want to mention that. He obviously does not get sole credit, but I'm mentioning him here because this is effectively the last time I'm going to bring him up. So I'm done from this point and for this perspective. Some of you have probably heard about Miss um, Bijou. Uh, I'm actually not sure how to pronounce that. Miss Trimble? The, one who, the woman who saved Star Trek and the big fan letter campaign? In this book, uh, the, the, he highlights a little bit of the behind-the-scenes on this. Now, I'm going to run you through this because this is actually many, 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 many... Hang on. Nope, we're done. Those That many pages long, okay, of just stuff. And I, like I said, I don't want to get to the point of just reading this stuff to you guys. I'm sure you would hate that. I'm sure I would hate that. But I wanted to mention that the summary here, okay? Here's the summary. Gene Ronberry organized the, the campaigns in order to save Star Trek. There you go. There's the summary. Bam. He was actually compensated for some of these things, as in he would actually build a studio for expense reports. And in case you think I'm joking, here's an actual expense... Uh, what's the proper term for this stupid thing? An expense memo incurred during his campaign to save everything. The, he also uh, arranged this NBC, uh, excuse me, this not this NBC, this March protest, whatever you want to call it, where they went to picket the Save Star Trek demonstration. It was, by all accounts, actually really legit. They reached out to the police in, ad in advance. They got their marching permit. They marched down there. They talked. The producers didn't give any proper answers. However, it is worth noting that, as I have mentioned before, the executives were already l keeping their options open but still debating and leaning towards renewing Trek. So that's something that was already happening. I just want to mention that, because this is probably the thing that helped push that the final tip. Um, 
Now, you're probably thinking, okay, do you have any evidence of that? Well, actually, I mean, ignoring the uh, interviews of Herb, I also have a memo, or excuse me, a letter that was written to Isaac Asimov on January 9th by Gene Roddenberry talking about the, the, the march from the California Institute of Technology, which is the, the students that actually arranged it. Again, I'm not going to read you the whole letter, but the whole thing is reproduced here. He also wrote on February 14th, 1968, to the uh, Chief Rex Andrews of the Burbank Police Department, the police who were reached out in order to allow the march to happen. Now, why am I sharing all this with you? Because until I did my research, I never heard of the fact that Roddenberry was behind the Safe Trek campaign. Now, I'm going to be real with you a second. My knee-jerk emotional reaction, that was something along the lines of, oh, that, what the hell? It, was, it almost felt like a very vague betrayal. Now, hold on to that for a second. What's your knee-jerk reaction to knowing he was behind that? Okay, now that I've gotten that out of the way, let me continue forward, because I think this is a little more complex than it looks at first. Uh, see, intellectually, these people were legitimate. The fan letters that were coming in were legitimate. The, the people who wanted to march were legitimate. The people who are working with Ms. Trimble were legitimate. There was an actual movement. It's just it was being pushed, coordinated, and given a little bit of insider access by someone in the studio, an executive producer, Gene Rodberry. Just because he was behind things doesn't change the validity of the fact that there were fans who wanted the show to continue. Point one. Point two. Wouldn't you do the same thing? I would. Or at least I would do something similar. Obviously, I want this to continue. This is my baby. This is my show, right? So there's nothing really necessarily wrong with doing that. The catch is he had to do that circum. He had to do it quietly. He had to do it quietly because if anybody find out, it would it would be the end. It would the whole thing would be screwed, and he'd probably be out his career. So what's the what's the problem here? Because I still have that emotional reaction to it. The, re the reason, though, is something else that I already know walking in, and I didn't realize at first that there's this connecting point here that is actually very relevant for this. You see, Star Trek was renewed for Season 3. Yes. And Gene Ronberry continued to serve as executive producer. Woo! And then he moved over to the MGM Studios and never did anything with Trek for the rest of Season 3. What? Now, I say never. That is an exaggeration. He was obviously still involved in the show, but he wasn't producing it. He wasn't directing it. He wasn't script editing it. He wasn't actually finding a new script editor. He wasn't finding a new major producer. He handed things off to other people and walked away from Trek. That doesn't sound like someone who's really interested in his baby to me. That sounds like someone who wanted an extra paycheck while he will go work to another job getting a second paycheck, which is exactly what happened. That kind of makes me go, and that's why the emotional reaction is still there. Now, I'll talk more about Season 3 when we actually get there, but I felt both of these things were relevant here because as this episode was being released, that's when they publicly announced, yes, we're being renewing, and during the production of, I think, the episode just prior to this, or, or in between the previous to this one, again, it's hard to nail down dates, is when the cast and crew were informed Season 3 has happened. This is also when a lot of people started to reach out to Gene personally to air their grievances about the show. Um, this would lead to several, several issues, uh, including some issues between Nimoy and Shatner, which had actually started becoming a real legitimate grievance between the two. 
Um, this would also lead to problems between everyone behind the scenes. I'll try to cover more of the details of that later, but I want to ask one question now. Put simply because I don't want to ask it at the end, at Turnabout Intruder. Do you think Star Trek should have gotten its third season? And as ever, why? Now you're probably thinking, that's a weird question, Lord. Don't you want more Star Trek? Absolutely. And that's what we got after it was canceled. Let's be abundantly clear. In an ideal world, the continuation of a franchise I love? Sure. But here's the catch. Reality gets in the way of that in almost every way, ignoring the obvious burnout problems which bled over into both Voyager and Enterprise, for example, to use direct, you know, direct usage of that kind of burnout problem. We also had the problem that the show was slowly being strangled to death. The NBC, or not NBC, the, the upper executives at Paramount would do, I think, four or five separate things basically designed to kill the show. They, dis they There's only two location shots in all of season three, for God's sakes. That's how much they were being restricted. They couldn't do significant special effects. They couldn't do significant guest stars, the makeup effects thing. They lost the camera guy, so they couldn't do him anymore. They lost their showrunner. Again, I'll talk about it. I guess I can talk about it now. So they didn't have a showrunner in season one or season two, but they did have a show team. A, a team runner? A show... A team of showrunners, let's put it that way. And that was Roddenberry, Kuhn, Fontana, and Justman. Every single one of these people bowed out right before or during season three. No one was at the helm. And I want to stress this, they didn't even have a proper script editor who was actually going through and, and rewriting the scripts. You remember that was a very common thing. This person wrote it, and also this person did rewrites. You remember how many times I brought that up? Well, this was becoming more and more of an issue in season three. So, they're having trouble actually keeping a producer in the job at all. They're having tr and they lose every single person who is the core, the core Star Trek. As much as I fling a lot of crap at Roddenberry, he is part of core Trek, at least at this part, period in history. And the loss of him, and Fontana, and Justman, and Kuhn, that's a mortal blow right there. Anything that's after that is not going to be Trek anymore. Now, that could be good. But if that was the only change, it might have been good. When you factor in the limitations, you factor in the budget cuts, you factor in... It's not even just budget cuts, by the way. This is insane. They started demanding that the show start paying for things in different methods. Now, that sounds like a strange change, and it is. It's actually an insane change. Because what it effectively means is everything is now going to be just a little bit more expensive because they can't purchase things on studio credit anymore. They would have to start paying for things in cash. Those kind of transactions are different, and they require different amounts of reserves at different times, which they may or may not have, which means things overall would become just a little bit more expensive and substantially more irritating to procure. <laughs> so that's another thing they did. So they cut the budget. They made the method by which the budget was being doled out more difficult to actually do. They lost a ton of people. They moved the slot to a terrible slot where most of their actual audience couldn't actually watch it. And remember, this is the late 60s. It's not like you could just watch the rerun later or, you know, leave the, leave the VSR and record, set it to record from X to X and then you're good. No. No. You, you are screwed if you didn't watch the initial sewing. Syndication wasn't even a thing at this point. And, and by that I mean syndication for Trek wasn't a thing. I'm not actually sure when syndication started becoming a thing in general. This was problematic in every way. 
And I'm not even done listing, and I'm not going to go there on the whole list. But that's my point. Season 3 was being absolutely destroyed, purposefully sabotaged to go down and burn hard so this show could be canceled, so they could justify canceling it. This is um, astonishingly stupid on behalf of Paramount, if I could just be completely blunt about this. Now, you might say, what well, they didn't have viewers. That's actually wrong. Their ratings weren't as good as other shows, but they were something incredibly important. They were consistent. You know what that means? That means loyal viewer base. That means they had a regular group of people tuning in every night to watch the same show. That is invaluable. And something that they could use to not only if, if they wanted to sell a specific ad space or if they tried to bring that in as a way to, to push into other markets. Or, there, there's ways you could use that. Even if all you care about is money, there are ways you can use that to plug and, and produce your show. So, if they had actually supported Trek, then yeah, absolutely, Trek should have had a season three and kept going. But given the circumstances, I now posit to you my theory that season three should have never happened. Now, I haven't watched season three yet. I'm here. I'm not even done with season two yet. Obviously, Roddenberry agreed with me, given the next episode. We'll talk about that then. But season three was so chopped at the knees that it was dying. The show was dying. I've heard a quote before, and I agree with it completely. Star Trek being canceled at the end of season three was the best thing that could have happened to it. Under the circumstances. You know, within, within reasonability. Obviously, being picked up by a network who actually cared and supported it properly would actually be the best thing. But given the limitations, this was a really good thing for Trek. Because it died off before it got worse because that's what usually happens to television, is they get worse. <laughs> just It's just like this narrow <laughs> plummet in quality. And I'm not talking about Trek or modern TV. I'm talking about television, especially within this era, up until at least the 80s. That was the norm, was a show would be squeezed out as much as it could until the show was, was basically a completely hollow, pathetic, terrible shell of itself, and then they'd finally cancel it because, okay, we've, we've wrung as much blood out of this stone as we're getting. That was normal policy. Trek managed to die... Well, I'm going to go and say this. Trek died before that happened. Now, several people are going to be like, no, they were doing that. Well, they were kind of doing that, but trust me. Season 3 is nowhere near as bad as that would get within television at this era. Okay, The, the ringing the blood out of the stone step, Trek wasn't there yet. So they didn't get to that step, and it gave time for people to walk away from it, to get away from the stress, to get away from the limitations, the budget problems, for the financial things, all of the things that in the moment were making these... Remember how I've mentioned several times, uh, several people will be like, ah, oh, I hated it, but then they look back on it fondly? It's because that distance helps to give them that different perspective. When they no longer have that everyday stress of constantly trying to push out whatever they can with the, with the incredible weight of everything la leaning down on them, then they can appreciate it for what it is, right? This is not just true in this era. Let me point to TNG. Patrick Stewart was not particularly fond of his role on TNG until it finally stopped. He did the movies, moved on, did some other stuff, and then as some years passed, he got more and more fond of his time on TNG to the point where he started thinking of it actually positively. In fact, he would eventually even come back to Star Trek with Picard, which I haven't watched yet, as a reminder. I'm pointing out all of this because that was happening for not just the creative staff, but also for the fans. 
fans started looking at Trek a little bit more fondly than they had at the time, especially as it started making its rounds, as the convention circuit started and all sorts of other things. The fan base just kind of slowly spread over time. When the movies came out, finally, people were primed for more Trek. And that wouldn't have happened if Trek hadn't been cancelled. So you kind of see how this lines up and why I say what I said. And again, that brings back the idea, should it have ha had that third season? Well, if there's going to be more of this Trek, the answer is no. This may not be a lamentation, but this is a terrible episode. Let's shred this sucker and move on. This is an episode by Roddenberry. And it shows. I'm just going to say that. I've never liked the man's writing. He actually, this is not a joke, he submitted this episode for Emmy consideration. Either way, um, what's funny is Robert Justman wrote a memo shredding this episode. He ended up actually finally not delivering that memo to Roddenberry because he felt it was too harsh. So then he just walked up and said, hey, Roddenberry, this, this, this is bad, here's what you should change. Roddenberry did not change any of those things. So the episode starts on a surprisingly decent note. It starts with a mystery. This is actually a mystery episode, as I've talked about the types of episodes as we go. Um, there's this other constitution ship. Nobody's alive, and they show up, and oh my god, there's a log. You're dead men. The guy who dies was actually supposed to be shown as dissolving on camera. Obviously, there was nothing in the budget for that, so that didn't happen. So he dissolves into crystals, and everyone's dying. They beam down to the planet. What do we do? But it's okay, because Dron Tr Tracy, who is an experienced starship captain, I remind you, is there. Oh yeah, by the way, apparently we're 96% water. Who knew? Anyways. <laughs> This then leads to Kirk giving an interesting quote. Now, this is from Roddenberry's own mouth, so obviously the PD is kind of a Roddenberry thing. Um, a captain should be willing to give his life, even the life of his entire crew, rather than violate the prime directive. Right. This then leads to the idea that Spock brings up. Regulations state that if you do not immediately approach him and bring him to task for this, you are also complicit and in violation of the Prime Directive. Wow. Now hold on, because we're going somewhere with this. This then leads to the Yangs, who are vicious. Vicious. They have no regard for life. And they're massing for a ma big attack. Then... Tracy kills a random red shirt. Uh, that would be Johnson, by the way. And I only write that down because Johnson's in future episodes. You remember Leslie? He died back in, uh, what was that, Obsession. But there was something in the script that was originally written so that he would come back to life. It's stupid, but it was there. In this episode, Johnson gets phasered into disintegration. He gets, he gets disintegrated by Tracy. Um, now, for once, I'm not that mad at the red shirt death because it shows how Tracy is... How, it, it doesn't establish that the threat is serious. It establishes the kind of person Tracy has become and how far gone he's gone. So, yeah, okay, he's the bad guy. Cool. Got it, got it. Um, what is it with Starship captains or Starfleet personnel just being insane and evil the moment anything goes wrong at all? You ever notice that? I've pointed this out before, and I'm pretty sure this isn't even the last time this is going to be a thing on this show. Where does this come from? As soon as they're... It's, I'm sure Cork would have a field day with this. Well, we took him away from the creature conference. I know, I'll kill everyone. 
Anyways, Johnson gets disintegrated and shows up in future episodes. No explanation given. Quality. This then leads to uh, Sulu being incredibly incompetent the whole episode. Do you know why? It's because if Sulu had even the minorest bit of a brain, the episode wouldn't have happened. Sulu's in command, if you're wondering why I'm picking on him in particular. So, that sucks. We find out, um, this, this, so let's talk about the Prime Directive. We find out that the people here have no disease and age. God, I keep drifting over here. It's like, it's so weird. I need to figure out what's going on with my camera and why it's so far off center. Like, I, if I'm looking straight forward, I'm looking here. I have to actually tilt to look at the camera. And yet this is centered? There's something going on here. I'm, I'm going to fi fiddle with this afterwards. Anyways. So, they don't age, or they age very, very slowly, and they don't have diseases. And they live into the hundreds of thousands of years. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So that's his big shtick. We need to take this. Um, so this is stupid. Let's look at the first perspective here. Let's assume there is some miracle agent on this planet which allows this. That would then justify Tracy's operations. Um, the thing is, that would not justify Tracy interacting with the people, or the Starfleet interacting with the people and interfering with their culture and all that fun stuff. No, what it might justify is trying to send in a specialist team under covert circumstances to very carefully look into things, try to identify it and figure it out, kind of like McCoy eventually actually does. I know that sounds horrible, but if there's a planet that has a resource that doesn't involve taking away from that planet of those people that can give eternal life, sure. No, I'm actually okay with that. But you'll notice how many specific circumstances I had to give to do that. That's the second problem. All of those circumstances have to be met. Because one of the biggest things the Prime Directive is supposed to prevent is exactly what Tracy is doing. This is, a, this is probably the most clear-cut, flagrant violation of the Prime Directive I have ever seen. I'm not, I'm not sure anything else actually does worse than this. Worse than this. I can pronounce ours. <laughs> this just because think about this. Imagine for a moment that a superior power shows up on a colony area and is like, "Oh, hey, you have something that I have tremendous need of. I'm going to walk in, promote this group. They are now going to be my puppet state, and I'm going to use them in order to, you know, control this planet while I take this resource from you for my own benefit." Yeah, that is pretty much the worst possible thing you could do in violation of the Prime Directive, and the kind of thing that I would be pretty against. I'm pretty anti-PD, but that's because of how it's usually applied, not the concept. That is unacceptable. Either way, this then leads to fight one of this episode, because there's multiple. Kirk ends up fighting Tracy and gets destroyed instantly. Okay. This then leads almost immediately to fight two with the Yangs, which is boring. Allow me to go ahead and say my biggest problem with this episode. It's boring. There's no real discussion or analyses of any of the cool concepts that actually do exist here. It's just really, really dull. In fact, I have a note about that we'll get to later. So then they fight some more. Yay, fight, 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 fight. And then Cloud William finally speaks, and I what do I even say? We, we speak, speak freedom words, you know. You know, speak to holies. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to keep going on that. Let's just move on. This then leads to Spock asking three times, Captain, 
Captain? Are you okay, Captain? Are you capable of responding? Are you unconscious right now, Captain? Captain? Because Spock's an idiot, apparently. This then leads to the fact that Kirk has been knocked out for seven hours. Question. The guards were so severe that they were capable of noticing that Kirk, McCoy was reaching for his communicator while being asleep. Why has no one checked on Kirk in seven hours? Why has no one checked on the Yang in seven hours, for that matter? Anyways, this then leads to one of the only redeeming parts of the entire episode. The tragedy. There's nothing here. There's no fountain of youth. It was all for nothing. It's just natural selection and the natural byproduct of these people that has led to them living very long lives and being very hardy because they're the only ones who survived, who bred. It's just straight evolution. Nothing fancy. So, it was all for nothing. Yay! I will give the episode this credit, too. In addition to that tragedy being a well-executed tragedy, it also makes sense that Tracy wouldn't know that. Why? Because Tracy's not a doctor or a, or a medical scientist or whatever. McCoy is. So the moment he has access to an actual medical doctor to research the thing, he finds out within a day that of what's going on. Further tragedy. Simply staying down there immunizes you. If the rest of his crew had stayed down, they'd be alive. You'll notice Tracy snaps after this, by the way. Just completely loses it. And I want to give credit to Morgan, Wood Morgan Woodward, who also played a crazy person back in um, Dagger of the Mind, I think was the episode. He does a pretty good job of playing someone who's completely unhinged. He does, he does a good job of it. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. But, uh, yeah, he comes in and he gives this great speech about, they just kept coming. We, we slaughtered them by the hundreds and they just kept coming. Yeah. So Tracy has lost it, and that helps to explain why, despite the fact that they now know they can just frickin' leave, he's like, no, I need more guns. I need more guns. I need to keep fighting the good fight. For the longest time, I wondered what the heck his motivation was here, and I just always sort of attribute it to he's crazy, like he completely lost his mind. I have a new theory there. He knew going back means he'd be arrested, so his only hope of actually having a life is to stay here. This is probably why he tries to ingratiate himself into the Yangs afterwards. It's still dumb, but, you know, whatever. This then leads to fight number three between the two of them. And, of course, naturally, the gun, excuse me, the phaser runs out of ammo, excuse me, battery packs at just the right moment. And this is where I have my note. Right here I have the note. This is tragedy mixed with boring. This is a really dull episode, and I, honestly, I would just put it as the unmemorable and just move on. One of those episodes you never really think about until the final act starts. Because then someone brings in an American flag. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. And we find out the Yangs are the... This is also when Kirk makes an astonishing leap of logic to assume that these are the remnants of the Yankees and the Communists. I'm not even going to touch on how many levels of stupid that is, ignoring the parallel Earth thing, which is already stupid, to the point they actually have an actual copy of the U.S. Constitution. That's how parallel this is. <sighs> My God. As usual, the books have tried to make sense of this. One of the books made a thing where the Constitution was actually dropped off very recently by another ship to try and give them something to guide them, rather than it being something that just developed on some random alien planet. This then leads to some stupidity. 
So first he starts mangling the speech of the, of the holy words. Why? They speak English perfectly well. When Kirk finishes it in full English, they understand what he means, and they notice that he's saying the holy words. Also, we get a shot of the thing. It is fully visible. We can actually read it in clear English. Why is he mispronouncing all this? Not answered. Then, Tracy starts trying to slant Kirk as the evil one. I, as I mentioned, he's probably doing this to try and in, ingratiate himself here. And he, uh, they use Spock's ears as evidence of him being evil, and the lack of his heart as evidence of the fact that he's evil. Okay. This is all really boring and stupid. Oh, the episode is too. I'm sorry. I'm trying to inject whatever I can into this. You'll notice there's a reason I spent so much time talking about the Season 3 thing at the beginning of this rumination. Either way, this then leads to fight number four. And so this is... I, I've been paying attention to the fights throughout the whole show. None of the fights in this episode have been good. This one is no exception. It's barely a fight. It's mostly just men grappling with each other. And you ever play D&D and you get into a grapple check with someone and it's like, okay, roll strength. All right, you fail. All right, he rolls strength. All right, he fails. All right, you roll strength. All right, you fail. That is this fight. Both people just failing their strength checks over and over and over again. Meanwhile, Spock uses his hitherto unforeseen ability to control women, yes, really, in order to convince What's-Her-Face to pull up the comm signal and signal alert so Sulu can finally vindicate himself, come down with some freaking armed guards. This is a very clear violation of the Prime Directive, but it's okay because we're, we're doing it for good reasons, but Tracy was doing it for bad reasons, so we're not actually in violation, even though we beamed down right in full view of the leader of the local tribe. Right. Then, you think the episode's over, right? Nope. Then there's four minutes left, and everyone stops. There's even a bit where they show that Trace is being led away by the guards, and he has to stop, and everyone has to turn and listen to the inspiring words of We the People from the beginning of the Constitution. Shatner hated this and absolutely hammed it up as much as he could. Which is funny, because I've seen Shatner ham harder than this, or better than this, or however you want to think of that. I've seen other actors ham better than this. I could probably ham better than this. It's a shame, because I wish he had hammed better than this, because that might have added something to this episode. And there's just this swelling, it's that music, I told you, it's that music. Da -na -na. Big inspiring music, Constitution! And there's even this bit where Kirk stares and just grins at the American flag, like, yeah. I'm not particularly anti-American. I mean, I live here. But what is this nonsense? The first three-fourths of the episode are boring and dull with one nice little bit of tragedy. The last fourth of it is just... And I don't know how else to explain it. Oh, the, hmm. But again, the thing that kept surprising me is it kept not pushing itself into that final screw you kind of feeling. For me, it never, it never got that final oomph. So this may be a one-off of a lamentation rather than a full lamentation. I mean, looking at my list of lamentations, Private Little War, Alternative Factor, The Apple, in my opinion, this is nowhere near as bad as any of those three episodes. Well, let me rephrase that. It is very near as bad as those episodes, but it is not as bad as those episodes. There we go. I feel like I, I love how I'm sitting here trying to justify my decision. It's okay. You don't have to agree with me. In fact, I would be very curious of your thoughts.
Next week we're going to cover... Ugh, we'll get there. Oh, I suppose I should do this one for this one. I actually thought about setting up the uniform and like hanging it on the shirt and putting some salt in it. Um, but I don't really have that much salt. I have like this much salt, so you wouldn't see it anyways. And of course, then I'd have to you know immediately wash this to get the salt out of my clothes. So forgive me. Just just picture it. Just gonna picture it there. I'll see you around, guys.